0: Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast that for the next 60 minutes will infect your mind and control your body by keeping you wrapped with attention at me, your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined, uh, as always, by the fungal infection to my host, literally, in another sense of the word, uh, Diane Nora. Hi, Diane. I hope you don't mind. I just called you a fungal infection. I apologize.
1: We'll move past it.
0: <laughs> great, great. That is the best attitude we could have. Life finds a way, uh, which is a, a phrase from a different kind of apocalyptic uh, piece of fiction. This week, we are talking about a new apocalyptic piece of fiction. Uh, 2023's first big prestige drama, The Last of Us on HBO and HBO Max. It premiered last Sunday. We watched the almost 90-minute pilot, and uh, I- I'm I'm loving it. But there's a lot to unpack, a lot to talk about, and it happens to be perhaps the first ever good live-action adaptation of a video game. Perhaps literally ever.
1: The only one I've seen.
0: That's really exciting times for us because, as we'll discuss a little bit later, there are a lot more live-action adaptations of a lot more video games in the works... And uh, perhaps some of them will be as good as the last of us. But that is for later in the episode, because first, Diane, I, I have to tell you, we-, we had things planned. You were going to tell me about Nike training on Netflix. Uh, we-, we had this article we wanted to talk about from John Landgraf at FX. There's just so much going on. but But more importantly, we have an emergency we have to deal with right now an emergency edition of America's Favorite Game Show. Yes, it's The Game, where we ask you, the listener, and Diane, have these series been renewed or canceled? Surprise.
1: Once again, I'm being thrown into this with no warning, and uh, woof, I'm going to do my best.
0: That's all we can ask. I know you're very unprepared because we played Renewed or Cancelled last week, and you would think we're safe for a little while. How many shows could possibly be renewed or cancelled in one calendar week?
1: Oh, this time of year, there could be quite a few.
0: That is the answer, and we are about to find out which of these shows have been renewed or canceled. So, listeners, feel free to play along at home. I'll leave a little pause so you can think about it between each question. And maybe keep score. Maybe send us your scores. Tell us how you're doing at renewed or canceled by emailing us, podcast at streamageddon.com. But without further ado, here we go. Question number one. I hope this is a layup for you, Diane. Abbott Elementary
1: avid elementary got renewed
0: renewed for season three on abc not surprising at all but vulture did point out uh avid elementary a 31 percent ratings increase over season one in the core 18 to 49 uh, demo the demographic advertisers love the best
1: yeah, those those people buy things. That's fantastic.
0: Great news for advertisers and for Abbott Elementary. People are buying things by watching TV still with ads. It's a crazy concept.
1: And it's winning awards. It's just really yeah. steep in the nation.
0: The renewal came right after uh, the day after Abbott Elementary almost swept the comedy categories at the Golden Globes. Much deservedly. Yeah, Yeah. right? Well, that was an easy one. Second question, warming up. This one might also be easy and and maybe a bit of a trick question, but I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. The bear.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, the bear got renewed.
0: That's correct, but... The bear got renewed for eight episodes, and they just expanded that order to 10 episodes. So the bear season two is now going to be uh, a supersized serving of the bear. 10 episodes premiering early summer FX on Hulu, no official date yet.
1: Okay, I, I hope that longer episode order will mean that they can do some juicy character
0: development. Same, same. And I would rather see them expand the episode order than have uh, episodes that run longer in order to fit more story in. Because one of the things I love the most about The Bear is that it's a 30-minute drama. So so tight. I love it.
1: Agreed. Though they are putting it up for half hours.
0: For, comedy? For, for
1: comedy for awards, which is okay, a bad sure, choice.
0: whatever. Uh, okay. Well, you know, moving on to choices that people have made and have to live with. Third show, Uncoupled
1: uncoupled got canceled
0: that's correct on netflix after one season that was the uh show from darren star who also created many popular shows amongst the let's say gay community and this was finally a show about a gay protagonist and unfortunately the gays just didn't care
1: i can't say that i watched it so i can't same. Blame anyone else.
0: Same. I thought, you know, it starred Neil Patrick Harris, who has a lot of mm. sitcom cred from How I Met Your Mother. But I do think the, the Venn diagram of big How I Met Your Mother fans and big Darren Starr fans is not as much overlap as I think Netflix thought.
1: There might have been some. I also didn't see a ton of advertising for this show.
0: No, it kind of just not fell really. through the
1: cracks for me.
0: Uh, unlike Darren Starr's other Netflix show, Emily in Paris, uh, which was renewed, but I'm not going to offer this as a question because it was renewed a year ago. They they renewed yeah. it for two seasons a year ago. Season 3 of Emily in Paris just finished. Season 4, already greenlit, still happening. Great news for Darren Starr, uh, who I assume is doing just fine.
1: Yeah, he'll live.
0: But, you know, not everyone can live in these challenging streaming times. So here is your next question. And again, this one, a little tricky, but I think you can figure it out. Workaholics.
1: Oh, so the Workaholics movie got canceled.
0: That's correct. Unfortunately, uh, Workaholics, the TV show, aired on Comedy Central for years. That's been gone for a while. But it was going to be rebooted on Paramount Plus as a standalone follow-up movie uh, with the original cast featuring uh, Adam Devine, who's one of the show's creators. Uh, And it was set to begin filming next month. And Adam Devine posted on Instagram, quote, Welp, Paramount Plus decided to cancel the Workaholics movie. Obviously, this news is the loosest butthole. We were supposed to begin filming in five weeks. P Plus told us we didn't fit their new global strategy, end quote. Uh, So uh, just interesting there to say Paramount Plus, obviously going through some transitions, as many streamers are. I don't quite know what the global strategy point is, except to say I bet Workaholics doesn't have a lot of uh, brand recognition outside of the U.S.,
1: that tracks i mean it was on cable i i really did enjoy that show though same. it's dumb but it's funny
0: same same but you know adam divine he gets around and so our next question pitch perfect colon bumper in berlin has that been renewed or canceled
1: oh we talked about this uh i think renewed
0: that's correct uh, Bumper in Berlin, one of the few living comedies on Peacock, happens to be the most successful comedy premiere in Peacock's history, which is probably not as impressive as it sounds, but that is good news for uh, the Bumper in Berlin crew. They've been renewed for season two. On Instagram, Adam Devine said, quote, I've got some good news. A huge thank you to the fans for making Bumper in Berlin the biggest comedy on Peacock ever. Who's ready for more? End quote great on instagram that adam divine
1: yeah he i now i know where i should go for my entertainment news that's it adam divine's instagram
0: that is good news for that team i am not a pitch perfect fan don't really have a lot of interest in finding out who bumper is or why he's in berlin and yet and yet his instagram makes me want to watch
1: i'm a little more intrigued than i previously was
0: same Same. Perhaps we'll circle back to it. But right now, we have more streaming shows to talk about. Next question. Chucky.
1: Oh, Chucky got renewed.
0: Chucky got renewed on Sci-Fi for a third season, which I I didn't even know there was a second.
1: Well, I didn't know that either, but I did read that it got (laughs) renewed. But uh, I feel like, um, you know, with the success of Megan, killer dolls are going to have a big moment
0: big year for killer dolls i'm thrilled uh but not not the only supernatural uh show i have to ask you about here so next question reginald the vampire
1: oh i okay i read something about this too reginald the vampire also got renewed right
0: that's correct renewed yeah renewed for a second season also on sci-fi uh and a quote i have here is the comedy horror series uh, starring Jacob Batalon from the recent Spider-Man movies. I, I am not super up on Spider-Man, but I know who he is, and I know that he is charming and kind of the anchor of this uh, uh, what-we-do-in-the-shadows-esque-esque in that it's Funny Vampires uh, series that's been, uh, according to this, very successful in the 18-49 to 49 demo. Again, the best demo.
1: Funny Vampires also having a big moment. Uh, Nick Cage is going to play Dracula. So... <sighs>
0: great year for vampires yeah
1: and killer dolls
0: oh wow wow 2023's really got a vibe uh, but you know I have a bonus question for you here I'm gonna pause for a moment and ask you this very pertinent bonus question who owns sci-fi um,
1: um is it in the the Paramount World? I have no idea. I'm so sorry.
0: That's a good guess. I, I might have thought Paramount. Um, it is NBC Universal, Uh oh. parentheses, a Comcast company.
1: Well, I did not know that.
0: Yeah, didn't really know that either. But uh, that's interesting in that they could just make sci-fi a tile and peacock. I, c- couldn't they? Why not? Why don't they do yeah. that? Sure. But, you know, that's a question for another day because I have another question for you right now. Back to shows... Snowpiercer.
1: Oh, Snowpiercer got cancelled.
0: That's correct. Snowpiercer cancelled after four seasons, but only three of those seasons have aired. This is yet mm-hmm. another instance of a network or streamer uh, pulling the rug out before a season has actually made it to viewers, but after it has been filmed. Uh, and this is, in this case, it's TNT. And TNT, you might know, part of the Turner family of networks, which is part of warner brothers discovery and in fact in this case Snowpiercer was the last original scripted show on tnt so it's not super surprising but it is a bummer because the the fourth season's done uh and it's another situation where wabro disco says they are helping shop around uh the remaining season to see if someone else wants to air it
1: netflix if you're listening
0: Mm-hmm. But, you know, speaking of shows that have been shopped around after uh, perhaps an ignominious uh, change of heart at Warner Brothers Discovery, I have one more question uh, that relates to common TV. And then we have one bonus wild card. But our final main question for you this week, Minx...
1: Oh, they're saving Minx?
0: They're saving Minx. You could have literally answered anything. You could have said renewed. You could have said canceled because it was both. Minx, of course, a show we love on HBO Max, was renewed for season two. Then they shot most of season two. Then HBO Max said, we're not going to air that anymore. And in fact, we're going to pull it off our service and we're going to Thanos snap away Minx. Minx. And then they said, but you know, we like it, and we're going to shop it around, and it's a Lionsgate show, and uh, Lionsgate happens to be part of Stars, Stars, which we talked about a lot last week, and so wouldn't you know it, Minx is going to air its second season on Stars. which means I have a feeling there will not be a third season of Minx, because as we covered last week, it's not a great time to be Stars.
1: It's not, though I'm glad that the work that was already filmed will be shown, it's feels like such a tough thing for creators when they've made the thing and then don't get to share it.
0: Agreed. Agreed. So I am excited to watch it and I'm holding out hope. I'm holding out hope that S.T.A.R.S. can get it together or at least that this is such a hit that it's the one thing S.T.A.R.S. doubles down on. Come on. We can make this happen, team.
1: Yeah. Come on,
0: everybody. Do your job and watch Minks. And we promise we will figure out how to stream S.T.A.R.S. You just leave that part to us.
1: Oh, we've got some work to do
0: <laughs> I mean, before we do that hard hard work I do have a wild card question for you to wrap up this exciting emergency edition of Renewed or Canceled this one a wild card because uh, the show in question might be more of a movie from many decades ago but here we go follow me on this one Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1 has that been renewed or cancelled?
1: History of the World Part 2 is finally coming
0: And where is that coming to? Hulu? That's correct. History of the World Part 2 is going to be a four-part limited series on Hulu, thus making it renewed. Uh, And just, uh, I'm going to give you a snippet of the people involved. A teaser trailer dropped uh, this past week. We have a link in the show notes. Just listen to this list of celebrity names. Wanda Sykes, Ike Barinholtz, Nick Kroll, Jake Johnson, Pamela Adlon, Quinta Brunson, Danny DeVito, Josh Gad, Johnny Knoxville, Kumail Nanjiani, Seth Rogen, Sarah Silverman, Taika Watiti, JB Smooth, Sam Richardson, Richard Kind, and literally that's it. That's when I got tired of typing.
1: So many comedy legends, but it all makes sense because who doesn't want to work on a Mel Brooks project?
0: Seriously, seriously, 42 years after History of the World Part 1, we finally get Part 2.
1: It might be time to rewatch History of the World Part 1.
0: Not a bad idea. And that opens up the the ever pertinent question: where can you stream that? Did Hulu get the rights or not? I, I did not do that research either, but I promise we'll do it in time for the premiere of History of the World Part 2. And you know, Diane, that was that was pretty much a perfect game. You you did miss my bonus question on who owns sci-fi, but I will not hold that against you because seriously, nobody knows who owns sci-fi. But now, you do.
1: Do you think the Roberts family knows that they own sci-fi?
0: No, no, I'm sure not. (laughs) It's spelled S-Y-F-Y. If they see it, they assume it's some kind of typo from autocorrect, and they they ignore it.
1: Yeah, it sounds like one of the uh, horrifying creatures on the show we are reviewing later, so...
0: I can't wait to talk about the infected sci-fis. But first, I have to read us out of everyone's favorite game, Renewed or Cancelled. Wow, I never get tired of feeling the exciting adrenaline rush of cancellations. But I I think I like renewals more. I'm going to say it. It's not the adrenaline rush of a cancellation, but it makes me happier.
1: Oh, yeah. I want shows to come back. We need more to watch.
0: We do. We need more to watch. We are not yet overwhelmed enough. We are just uh, overwhelmed in general. Please make it crushing. Make it absolutely maddening. And then maybe we'll have enough to watch.
1: Fingers crossed.
0: But you know what I don't want to watch? CNN. And that brings us to yet another edition of What's Going On at Wabro Disco. Uh, Because uh, we have a headline this week that CNN's uh, current chief, uh, relatively new chief, Chris Licht. We've talked about the uh, rise of Chris Licht on this show over the past year. He's been struggling to right the ship at CNN, so to speak, after the massive CNN Plus debacle that occurred uh, during the uh, handover of CNN. I feel like I'm talking about Hong Kong being handed back to China. I'm like the handover when AT&T gave CNN to Warner Brothers uh, so Chris Licht, not super popular amongst the rank and file. Uh, ratings at CNN, terrible. A- and what's important to know there is that the ratings at MSNBC and Fox are not doing as badly as the ratings at CNN, especially in prime time. So CNN is in the loser position right now. And so according to Semaphore, the uh, news organization with the stupidest name, the uh, CNN wants to reinvent their primetime lineup uh, from—it's two hours a night, I believe 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern. They want to reinvent this as some kind of news-comedy fusion, a la Bill Maher, which— Neither
1: news nor comedy—
0: Oh, geez. And, and to be fair, according to this report, Chris Licht really would love a John Stewart or Trevor Noah for this two hours a night, which I, I just have to say is the most delusional sentence I've read in the streaming universe, maybe in all time, because I cannot think of two people less interested in that job.
1: Yeah. Uh, he also mentioned John Oliver, uh, who has a plum gig <laughs> Yeah, You know, why would you if you had a weekly show at a better network, that's definitely going to give you more money. Like, why would why why would anyone leave that for the nightly gig? We know Trevor Noah wants to get out of his nightly gig. He
0: quit. Yes, literally quit doing it. And that was four nights a week for 23 minutes a night. Chris Ligt is talking about five nights a week for 120 minutes a night. I also, to John Oliver as a point, like, sure, he, they work for the same parent company. They both work for Warner Brothers Discovery. John Oliver is a huge success. The show does have an amazing balance of humor and in depth news analysis. It is a great example of something to aspire to, sure. It takes them all week to produce. 30 minutes of that quality content. And they only do that like 30 weeks out of the year. That doesn't scale up to five nights a week, two hours a night. That just doesn't. Ask Gutfeld on Fox how that's going for him.
1: I was going to say, part of the horrifying aspect of this news story is contending with the fact that many Americans may be watching Gutfeld.
0: If you or someone you know is watching Gutfeld... There's hope. You can call an anonymous hotline for an intervention today.
1: Email podcast at streamageddon.com dot com, and we will tell you better things to watch.
0: We have a lot of suggestions. We do. You could be watching a lot of better content, uh, and it doesn't—it doesn't even have to be prestige. We've got a lot of garbage filler content that we think you'll love.
1: I'm generally opposed to hearing that a show has been canceled. For years, I've been hoping to hear that Bill Maher has been canceled on HBO, because it's just such a stain on the HBO lineup. But I now am afraid because I don't want him on, on CNN. CNN five nights a week. Ooh.
0: He is somebody who I would see saying yes to the gig too. Uh, and that mm-hmm. That scares me.
1: It really scares me, too. Oh, please. No. Come on, man. OK, this is Chris Licht has done too much. He he tried to mess with New Year's Eve. Yeah, and he told Anderson that he was outrageous drink. enough. What are you talking
0: yeah. about, you madman?
1: Anderson only, you know, lets loose one night of the year and just give him his night. You monster. Anyway, uh, Chris Licht, not popular uh, in my
0: books No, not popular in mine either. Apparently not popular at CNN. Uh, When you texted me this article, I was reminded that Stephen Colbert in one of his interviews, I believe with the New York Times... Uh, mentioned that Chris Licht, you know, came to him. Uh, Chris Licht used to be the executive producer of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, uh, was essentially Stephen Colbert's boss, and really uh, was part of what uh, brought Stephen Colbert's Late Show into its heyday. Because it's easy to forget, when Stephen Colbert started The Late Show, it was kind of a rocky start. It wasn't a ratings hit overnight. He was losing to Fallon. Uh, It took him a while to kind of get his footing and find his voice. And part of that was bringing on Chris Licht to really... Uh, streamline I think their production Uh, and that worked really well and Colbert and Chris Licht became very close and according to this interview uh, Chris Licht you know told Stephen Colbert I'm going to take this job at CNN and Stephen Colbert said as a friend I'm warning you not to it's not a good job it it will not treat you well and if you say I don't care I'm going to do it anyway I'll stop telling you not to but I'm warning you and and Chris Lick said, no, nah, I really want to do this. I feel like it's important or something. Sure. Bringing Bill Maher to primetime is important. Uh, but promoting
1: this ridiculous fallacy that conservative views are underrepresented on cable, on news, cable news. is just what? absolutely absurd. I really think that what Chris Lick is doing at CNN is like dangerous for the world. I just oh, I please bring back Zucker.
0: Maybe he has cordyceps. maybe the fungus has gotten into his brain and is controlling his movements erratically as he pivots from you know, he came in and he was like, "I'm going to make sure that CNN is just news, no spin, no left or right. And now eight months later, he's like, "What if it was comedy?" Oh no. That's a great new slogan for CNN. This is CNN. Oh no
1: that That's really where where we've landed.
0: Alas, that is where we've landed. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we have happier things to talk about this week, like uh, the end of humanity in The Last of Us. Uh, but before we get there, I want to pivot just ever so slightly uh, to another part of Warner Brothers Discovery. <laughs> Of course, HBO and HBO Max, home to The Last of Us, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. Uh, But HBO Max, which, of course, is going to transform... Uh, like a zombie infected by cordyceps into some kind of other streaming service merged with Discovery, perhaps just called Max. Who knows? Sometime later this year, we're going to find out all about that. But one thing we already know is that that's going to cost you at least $1 a month more than HBO Max cost you last year. Uh, because HBO Max is raising its base price uh, for the ad-free tier from 15 bucks a month to 16 bucks a month. And uh, okay, sure, I'm fine with that. Uh, that
1: seems that seems fair to me. Uh, it is pushing it, but it's um, not the most expensive streaming option.
0: No, and HBO Max, remember, launched at $15 a month. It's been $15 a month for years now. And at the beginning, $15 a month felt a little steep. Uh, for HBO Max, but I have to say, like, at this point, uh, you know, Netflix's main plan is $20 a month. People are used to a slightly higher streaming price point, especially for these kind of mega services that have so much content under one umbrella. Admittedly, HBO Max, less and less content by the day, but still a lot of content under one umbrella.
1: As they describe it, culture defining programming. Oh, yes. I think that's actually kind of accurate.
0: Not wrong. I'll, I'll let them say that.
1: And Bill Maher,
0: and unfortunately, also Bill Maher. That's also there. True, true. Uh, just for comparison, you know, Disney Plus recently went uh, from six ninety nine to seven ninety nine to ten ninety nine a month. Uh, so you know, everything is moving up in that general direction.
1: The radical idea that uh, these streaming services might need to start making some
0: profits—insane. That is not how capitalism works. You just dump money into a pit labeled Original Programming, and go from there.
1: Spend, 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 baby.
0: Mm. But you know, sometimes spend, spend, spend is the right mantra, because I happen to know that the show we're talking about this week, The Last of Us, each episode of season one of The Last of Us is costing more than each episode of uh, the first five seasons of Game of Thrones, I believe is the stat I saw. we're, We're not reaching Game of Thrones season seven level budgets here, but we are quickly blowing past seasons one through five, which were very elaborate, lush seasons of television.
1: Does that include the cost of the IP? That is a
0: fantastic question. Because I don't, of course, I don't know,
1: because I, I would imagine, yes, that is driving up the cost.
0: You would think... Uh, and at the same time, this is such an interesting combo because, uh, as as we said at the beginning, this is uh, perhaps the first good live-action video game adaptation. And it did I did take note of the moment at the end credits where the PlayStation logo popped up on the screen because, of course, Sony is a co-producer. And, in fact, one of the co-creators and writers for the, the first season is the creator of the game. They are deeply involved in the scripting process. And they just re-released The Last of Us on PlayStation 5 just this past year sort of as a tie-in to the series, I think, to say, hey, if you've never played the game and then you watch the show and you think, oh, this is so cool, well, good news, you can play the most beautiful high-res version of the game yet, because the the game is uh, about a decade old at this point, Uh, so it was a nice up-res for the new console generation, but also smart advertising, so to speak, on Sony's part, because you basically have a free ad airing on HBO every week right now, and I hope you have some product you want to sell on the heels of that
1: oh yeah i'm sure i'm sure but uh i have to say i'm not a gamer but i do think that the last of us is a game that many of my gaming friends have recommended to me because it is like so rich in its storytelling uh that it seems like the sort of game that non-gamers might be able to get into Uh, Is that your experience with
0: it? Yeah, I'm not a Sony player. I I, I do game, but I do not own a PlayStation. So I've never played Last of Us because it's a PlayStation exclusive. But I've heard about it so many times. And I have uh, PlayStation friends who rave about it for the exact same reason, that it has a gripping cinematic story uh, and then is really a challenging and fun kind of stealthy first-person shooter, I believe. Uh, But I've, I've heard it's hard. I have heard it's hard. And so I think part of what's smart in adapting uh, material like this is if you're not a gamer, you hear that the story is amazing. But you also hear, well, you kind of have to be a gamer to be good at this game. And it might be difficult and frustrating if you just play it for the story. Uh, and so here's an idea what if we just made the story for you to watch? And then you don't have to play anything. I'm sold. Same, to be honest. And and listen, there will be a crowd of people who are in love with this IP and then maybe go buy a PlayStation or they have a PlayStation, but they've never played this for some reason. And so they pick it up. Uh, definitely possibilities. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is just this show. I did want to point out the short recent history of live action video game adaptations and then some of the ones that are already in the works uh, because it's, it's picking up pace. I think uh, a lot of Hollywood... Uh, was burned by early video game adaptations in the 80s and 90s. A lot of people remember the Super Mario Brothers movie that had little to no relation to the Super Mario Brothers games and was set in, like, a gritty, dark version of Brooklyn, which is never a setting in any Super Mario game I've ever played. Uh, And of course, ironically, Super Mario Bros. is going to be coming back as an animated film from Illumination later this year, and it looks completely different than the live-action version, uh, and in a good way. Uh, But sticking to live-action, recently, Resident Evil, which is one of the longest-running kind of zombie apocalypse uh, video game series of all time, that had a disastrous adaptation on Netflix that was cancelled... I, maybe faster than I've ever seen any Netflix show canceled.
1: I mean, I didn't watch the game, so I'm not the target, or I didn't play the game, so I'm not the target viewer, but I had no interest in that.
0: Yeah, I read the reviews, and uh, they, they were not enthusiastic. Uh, another one that is on Netflix currently and still doing well is The Witcher. Uh, difference with The Witcher, I think, is that it's a, a more niche game. It's not as popular, maybe, as The Last of Us is, uh, or not as zeitgeisty. I also think because it's a bit of a, a Lord of the Rings-esque or Game of Thrones-esque setting, it's not as... Uh, universal as The Last of Us where listen zombies are always somehow a super popular setting for your show even after decades of The Walking Dead exhausting the genre everyone is always interested in a new take on zombies
1: yeah uh it's you know evergreen content
0: truly truly Uh, Also uh, released this past year to, you know, a medium response would be the live action adaptation of Halo, which is on Paramount Plus. Halo, obviously the uh, kind of flagship uh, shooter on the Xbox platform, that, that show uh, didn't get a huge critical response, but wasn't uh, panned the way Resident Evil was. So in a way, we're kind of looking at, it's uneven right now, but with shows like The Witcher, we are seeing oh, some momentum towards higher quality or more critically successful video game adaptations. Uh, which certainly was some of the fuel, I'm sure, behind uh, adapting The Last of Us, but um, perhaps more so behind some of these other adaptations that are in the works. I'll give you a quick readout. Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn slash Forbidden West, those are two games in the same series. Those are being uh, adapted to a live-action series. That, again, is like a post-apocalypse, but instead of zombies, it's robot dinosaurs. Sign me up. Ooh. Yep, yeah, right? Okay. Uh, Fallout, which is another game series where I have a lot of experience watching roommates play Fallout games because they are very cinematic and you can enjoy the characters and the setting a lot in a Fallout game. So that one, uh, being adapted by Amazon, uh, has a lot of potential in my mind because uh, there's a lot of rich uh, uh rich and varied entries in that series so they can pick up in a lot of different places and go a lot of different directions with it that i think uh will kind of juxtapose to the last of us because the last of us is following the storyline of the game very very closely and fallout the creators have told us they're more interested in a new story set in that world cool also featuring walton goggins and who doesn't love walton goggins
1: i'm you're selling me on some of these shows
0: well, I have two more to try to sell you on. Uh, Assassin's Creed, popular franchise, not really one that I'm interested in, but okay, they're adapting that. And then finally, most importantly, a live action Pokemon show. Yeah. Did you see Detective Pikachu? I love Detective Pikachu.
1: Oh, I didn't see it. Oh, no, it's so but good. I it's love so I love Pokemon. It's so fun.
0: The, it truly... I'm
1: not a gamer, but I like Pokemon.
0: Uh, Who doesn't like Pokemon and who doesn't like them live action? I never would have thought live action Pokemon would work as well as it did, but Detective Pikachu is charming and weird and feels like a world where all these weird creatures are just like bopping about with their little fur. Gotta catch them all. Perhaps we will catch all of these series as we watch them and the rise of video game adaptations. Uh, But you know, before we get to The Last of Us itself... We have to talk about the other elephant in the room, the zombie elephant. So, of course, The Last of Us inherits the post-apocalyptic mantle, let's say, from shows like The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, of course, being like the marquee zombie show of our generation, uh, and and one that overstayed its welcome by a lot. It only just ended this past year. Uh, but it also spawned, I think, an entire resurgence of, like, zombie interest in the pop culture. Uh, I, I fell off The Walking Dead yeah a decade ago at this point. Uh, But one difference that just struck me, uh, which does not spoil anything really for The Last of Us, The Walking Dead kind of morphed over the years from being about humans versus zombies to being about humans versus other humans. Uh, As the zombie storylines kind of exhausted themselves, they just kind of shifted to, well, zombies are always in the background, and that's scary and threatening and could, you know, really upend things at a moment's notice. But the motivation of the zombies is really one note. So we need characters with other motivations to be villains. And that uh, led to Negan and all these other uh, characters and then organizations and then little, like, nation-states that that I think a lot of viewers found strayed from the original premise or juice of the show. Uh, Whereas, comparatively, The Last of Us is about all of that right out of the gate. And sure, the zombie threat is real and uh, very much a part of the uh, horror-thriller aspect of uh, the the action, but the main story is about people versus other people very clearly from the get-go, which I think is a a smart difference if you're setting up a new zombie universe to to kind of learn from the past mistakes that it needs to be about more than the zombies because the zombies are never going to... uh, evolve or change in terms of their character motivation
1: yeah i think that gives the show a lot of uh nuance and depth and space to grow
0: same same which is i think important in some of these uh, post-apocalyptic shows in general uh you know kind of going through a quick list of both hits and failures Uh, A lot of the ones that are hits are shows like The Leftovers and Station Eleven, which maybe weren't uh, ratings hits, but they were critical darlings, and each of them very focused in scope. Station Eleven was a one-season limited series, Uh, The Leftovers three seasons, and uh, very tight kind of construction in terms of the story. Uh, I think a lot of those do best when they have an end point in mind.
1: Yeah, I might add The Handmaid's Tale to that as well, which is in the dystopia. But, you know, it definitely uh, is playing in that same uh, tone of something like The Leftovers.
0: Yeah. And of course, the other touchstone that uh, we have to talk about in relation to The Last of Us is Chernobyl, uh, also on HBO. Also from Craig Mazin, Chernobyl is the true story of what happened at Chernobyl, so it's not really post-apocalyptic in that, you know, in the future sense, but it's very post-apocalyptic in the people uh, dealing with an apocalyptic event sense. And there is so much uh, parallel between Chernobyl and The Last of Us.
1: I found that show so beautiful and devastating, but also very difficult to watch. It had so many small moments of human cruelty and ineptitude, but also just like beautiful moments of humanity. I, I, knowing that is the same creator makes me very excited for where this could
0: go. Same, same. And, you know, listeners, if you have a favorite post-apocalyptic show or a favorite post-apocalyptic trope, uh, why not send that our way? Podcast at streamageddon.com. I'm going to throw in uh, my favorite post-apocalyptic art. Not a TV show, but if you're in the theater world, you might know of a play called Mr. Burns, uh, which is set post apocalypse and in that and and partly it is a favorite because it does touch on tv because it's about how people living in the post apocalypse retell stories of episodes of the simpsons as a kind of uh, oral storytelling history and and i'm a sucker for that and it's got a really interesting three act story structure i'm a sucker for story structure but it also feels very real in that it deals with some of the things that would happen in a, a an apocalyptic event that you don't immediately think of for example example, if there's no one manning the nuclear power plants, they melt down. And then what happens to people who are, you know, living downstream of that water supply or something like that? There's a lot of unintended consequences and world building that that play pokes at.
1: Yeah, I like that play a lot. I think it's so original and creative that it's just a very fun world to dwell in for a couple hours, even though, you know, with anything post-apocalyptic, it's dark. But it really that the the premise allows for a lot of humor, which is great. I this The Last of Us really brought to mind for me um, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Children of Men. Mm. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. I think also because there's um, a young woman with a remarkable ability that the hero has to try and protect. I was like, oh, you know, here we go. Yeah,
0: which is also like um, a classic uh, trope for a hero journey. You know, the reluctant hero Mm -hmm. has to protect this person who seems at odds with them.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that is a fantastic movie. And that makes me, again, excited about where the show could go.
0: Well, if we're so excited, we should just talk about this show. It's time, spoilers, for the first episode of The Last of Us. So The Last of Us, which airs on HBO and HBO Max, just had its premiere. And in that premiere, we watched the world end. How'd that feel, Diane?
1: Um, it was hard to watch in some moments for me. There was a, a particularly gruesome moment where I almost gagged.
0: What was it?
1: Uh, um, with the old neighbor lady. Oh, and yeah. The first time we see one of the people who's been infected, uh, attacking someone. Um you see the their like flesh coming out of her mouth. It's uh
0: the like it's gruesome. The the tendrils of the fungus coming out of her mouth. Yeah.
1: Is that what it was? It was I yeah, I almost had to pause the show. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that was, I, I obviously knew a lot of what was coming. Zombies, apocalypse, fungus. But the little details that were also clearly held back from the trailers, because in none of the trailers I saw, did I see those little tendrils coming out of someone's mouth. And that did creep me out in a show that I was already primed to be creeped out by.
1: Yeah, I was expecting some violence, but I didn't know it would look quite like that.
0: Same. Same. Um, And, you know, I I also want to start at the very beginning of the episode with something else I didn't expect, but I thought was so smart. The cold open for the pilot is set in the 60s and is completely divorced from the rest of the show, but establishes what's going to happen in the apocalyptic event so clearly and so uh, smartly in that it makes you feel like everything that I'm about to watch could actually happen even though the science is not really quite there for that to be true, uh, it is. it feels close enough that you. I'm like, oh, no, no, no.
1: It's interesting. They have the two experts on the show, and one of them is talking about the possibility of a global pandemic. And then, because it's 1968, he defines pandemic for the audience, which was one of those other moments where I was like, oh, right, this is not about... 2023, even though I know that soon we'll be jumping to 2023. um, Yeah, that I found really interesting. I found
0: that great. And, and, and as they're talking about, you know, what would really cause a global pandemic like this is, you know, air travel could allow that disease to move around the world really quickly. And of course, you have all of these feelings of, yes, that is what happened. What's your point? Where are you going with that? That is the world I live in now. Thank you very much. And so then they defer to the other expert on the panel who says, no, no, humanity Humanity can deal with a flu. We've had a flu before. A lot of people die, but humanity survives. The thing that could actually wipe out humanity is a fungal infection. And then they talk about these real fungi like cordyceps, that exist in nature, that infect animals and take control of their brains, essentially, turn them into zombie hosts, and, and do it through a variety of bizarre mechanisms, like flooding their brains with hallucinogens and things like that. Uh, and this is real. I'd heard of this before in terms of the ants that they mentioned that, that get taken over by these uh, fungi. Uh, and the point that this uh, you know expert makes in the cold open is that right now— uh, no fungus can survive the heat of the human body. The human body gets too hot uh, and fungus can't survive above like 94 degrees Fahrenheit. However, that's not too far from the temperature of the human body. And as he says in this cold open, what if fungi had reason to evolve to survive warmer temperatures? What if the climate gradually got warmer. And so fungus gradually learned to survive in a warmer temperature and then one day could survive in a temperature as warm as the human body. Then we could face a fungal infection that wipes out all of mankind by turning each host into not just a vector of infection, but into a literal violent killing machine.
1: They they set that up so well, it didn't feel expository.
0: No, what's crazy is it's just an exposition dump and none of it feels expository. All of it feels like it is um, telling you a terrifying thing that's about to actually happen to you in real life.
1: Yeah. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I feel like we're in good hands with Craig Mazin and this pilot. It just starts moving and gets where it needs to go.
0: Yeah. And so this gets to my... um, Uh, Second question about the the overall shape of the pilot and one where I had one opinion 30 minutes into the episode and then another opinion at the end of the episode. So after this cold open, we go to 2003 and we see uh, Joel – Uh, played by pedro pascal in his life with his daughter in texas and we know that this is basically going to be like the day of the apocalypse it it, it just feels obvious because we know that the show is not about him in 2003 with his daughter in texas the show is about him in the present day post-apocalypse with this girl playing his surrogate daughter essentially that much we already know so we get to this part in 2003 and my gut reaction was I don't want to see this now. I want to jump to the real show. I've, you've set me up so well with that cold open. Take me straight to 2023 and have me, let me meet him in his current state and then let me find out about his past later. That was my gut reaction, I think, because I was itching to get going after that cold open. I'm, I'm curious, did you feel anything similar to that?
1: I didn't, to be honest. I thought that the sequence in 2003 worked. Partially because it didn't feel like a flashback to me, um, and I think that as a flashback, it would have been a bit of like, "This is why my character is like this." But um, it moved really well. I thought uh, Nico Parker, the young actor who played his daughter, was really good, and so I didn't mind watching this
0: she father-daughter
1: excellent. relationship. You know, like I, I was okay to sit in that world for a while, personally, as a viewer.
0: Yeah, and I I changed my tune by the end of the episode, because at the end of the episode, Joel has a clear flashback to the moment that uh, a soldier killed his daughter as they were Mm -hmm. fleeing. And uh, he then, you know, kills a soldier in the present day in order to protect and save uh, his new surrogate daughter. How nice how that works out, Ellie. and. Uh, I, in that moment, went, oh, well, of course, we had to already see that moment in his past. It would not work to learn that detail about his past later. I need to see that parallel right now to just seal the deal on who these characters are, why he's going to act the way he's going to act, and why he's going to do things that are sometimes are shocking. Like, he murders this kind of flunky uh, military guard that we met earlier in the episode, brutally punches mm. him to death.
1: Yeah, another moment that was a bit hard to watch, but I think was effective.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, And and effective in that we got to see the reaction from uh, Ellie, which is Mm -hmm. an interesting reaction. She is not the same as his uh, daughter. His daughter watched him murder the uh, old woman infected with the fungus and was horrified. Ellie watches him murder this guard who was going to kill Ellie. Uh, You know, 100% clear that, like, her life was at stake there. Uh, She she watches, you know, Joel kill this guy. and, And she looks more uh curious or uh, kind of alert like Even this is something maybe she, impressed? yeah like th- like this is something she aspires to be able to do that she mm-hmm. wants to be able to handle things as efficiently as he does
1: yes i think i think that's definitely true and to me they had a um a throwaway line earlier in the episode where they talked about the difference in attitudes with um young people who were born after this had happened. And I think that that is something that I just kind of skimmed over when I heard it the first time and then really uh, showed true to me when uh, we see her engaging with him. And I'm excited to see more time with those two characters together. Uh, We get a a little teasing of it in in this pilot, but most of the pilot, they're separate.
0: Yeah, and so I am... It's a great pilot in that way in that I'm excited now to watch them on their journey together, and I got just enough of a taste of that in the pilot that I feel uh, like I know what that's going to feel like. I have an idea of what I'm looking forward to, but they didn't give me a lot of it. They withheld. Very smartly, they withheld, uh, and instead gave me a lot of world building and a lot of character background and a lot of really great ensemble characters. I really like uh, Anna Torv, who plays Tess, who is Joel's uh, partner. I I don't think they have a romantic thing going on. I think they're just uh, partners in crime, but also in this kind of environment that is sort of the most intimate relationship you might have with anyone, to be honest. They seem real tight, and she's just kind of enigmatic to watch. We meet her in a really unusual scene. We don't know who she is yet. She's being interrogated or beaten up by someone else in the new Boston underworld. Uh, And then we kind of piece together what her relationship is and and how uh, she and Joel are essentially like smugglers together who break out of the walled city of Boston to uh, run drugs and other supplies. And she's great.
1: She is. I loved her on Mindhunter, so I was pretty excited to see her back in this. Um, And I love that their relationship is at at least this point not explicitly sexual, partially because it, you know with everything that he's been through at that point, I'm not sure that I would buy him being in some sort of romantic relationship. It just felt like I I liked that she was a character on her own and didn't seem like she was just his side piece.
0: Agreed. Agreed. And I'm and I like the idea of them all three together on a road trip together because there's a lot of tension there that is more complex than just the surrogate father surrogate daughter tension between the two mains because obviously a big reveal at the end of the pilot is that uh, Ellie seems to be immune to the fungus that uh, they are sneaking out because they've been told they need to take her to another resistance hub. There's a resistance, because, of course, in any good fascist post-apocalyptic state, there's a resistance, the Fireflies, which, I don't know, could have been a better name. But the Fireflies are doing something with Ellie, we don't know what— and through kind of a series of accidents, there's a shootout, the fireflies get injured. At the same time, Joel is trying to steal essentially a car battery that was supposed to be sold to him, but then he got kind of double crossed by the smugglers selling him the car battery. And so he's there to try to steal the car battery, walks into the aftermath of a shootout in which most of the fireflies get shot or uh, injured, and the fireflies are desperate for reasons not entirely clear in that moment to get Ellie out of town and to get her to this resistance hub at the State House in Massachusetts. Uh, And so we have a, you know, if you know anything about the show, you have a sense of what that reveal is going to be. But I think they play it real smartly. They don't drag it out for too long. At the end of the episode, it is cards on the table clear that Ellie is immune, but that if she gets tested, because we do know from earlier in the episode that the feds have a test that tells you whether someone's infected or not, if she gets tested she's going to test positive for being infected because she is infected but she's immune to the the fungus and its effects so any anybody who catches her and tests her will kill her that that is made abundantly clear in terms of the stakes and it's then clear immediately the stakes of her dying is that the cure might be lost
1: right uh so she could potentially save the world
0: she could. And in, there's the best moment in terms of the, the character dynamics that they're building in this episode for me was that final moment where she tests positive. The little screen on the tester turns red and she stabs the, the guard who tested her in the ankle. Joel goes into kind of like overdrive, uh, protective father mode based on what we saw in the past. And he, you know, punches to death this military guard. But that's when Tess... Anna Torv's character, sees the red screen and result, and immediately her reaction is, oh my god, we have to kill this girl because she's infected. And the moment there, the tension of he's trying to protect Ellie. Tess is now trying to get, you know, protect him from Ellie. And Ellie, who's been told, don't tell anyone your secret, has to be, you know, like, no, 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 no. It's, I know this, and it's okay. And look at my, my scar on my arm. You can trust that I'm not going to infect you. And that dynamic in that moment, I just thought so well constructed that at this moment, I'm so invested in all three of these characters who I just met in the last 80 minutes.
1: Agreed. Yeah. And also, it was just an incredibly tense moment. Um, And it wasn't just tense in the sense that like, oh, another zombie is gonna hop out and scare us. It was tense in the sense that uh, the character stakes were so high. For all yeah. three of them,
0: yeah, getting back to what we were talking about earlier compared to The Walking Dead, this is what I meant with. I just feel like this show has learned the lessons of the of you know twelve or fifteen seasons of The Walking Dead right out the gate, which is the zombies are what make things life and death scary and what give you jump scares and horror thrills. The zombies are the seasoning on the dish but the dish isn't isn't zombie pie the dish is about (laughs) the characters and the world and everything else going on and the zombies just give it the flavor that makes it so juicy and so interesting but that's all all the zombies really do is they up the stakes
1: right And, and and they sure do (laughs) And they
0: sure do, as we see multiple times through this episode. And we haven't even seen some of the craziest stuff from the trailers yet. But there is that moment where Joel and Anna, I'm sorry, uh, Joel and Tess are uh, breaking into this place to steal the car battery. And they go into a basement and there is a dead body fully fungified against the wall. Almost like uh, the ghost image of somebody uh, blasted by a nuclear bomb, literally.
1: So grotesque, but also almost beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And very Chernobyl,
1: sort of. Yeah, it really, that was one of those moments where I thought back on Chernobyl. I do think, for me, part of the strength of Chernobyl was its handling of the way that bureaucracy was used to prevent the saving of human life. Um, And the way that uh, they sort of bumbled ineptly into incredible callousness and cruelty and seeing what we've seen so far here with FEDRA, um, which is sort of this fascistic version of FEMA, I guess, right. where they're supposed to be um, uh, the the horrifying force that's controlling life in this quarantine zone. I'm not sure that I buy that as like a useful allegory to our world right now like uh, especially after what we have just experienced with covid where like at least in this country there was like basically no lockdown um the idea that uh we would be going to these extreme lengths to do that felt like oh I- i'm not scared of that <laughs> because that seems really far removed um but i do trust craig mazin as a creator he's He's lived through, uh, you know, the, the horror of having Ted Cruz as a roommate and also handled Chernobyl so beautifully that if anyone can pull it off, I think he can find a way to make it relevant.
0: I think that's a good point. And, you know, one of the things uh, that I could say in praise of the later seasons of The Walking Dead is they created a post-America universe where it wasn't like, oh, you know, the federal government locked everyone down in Alexandria, and they're okay. It's more complicated than that. It's the wreckage of society. And The Last of Us, at least so far, seems to take place in a world where a A part of society, as we know it, held together through extreme measures, which, you're right, does not track with our lived experience of the last three years. Uh, But at the same time, you have to remember the story that they're actually basing this on, The Original Last of Us, predates the pandemic by a lot. Uh, And I'm, uh, in in, a more relevant sense, interested in where they go now that they've left the Boston quarantine zone. Because in the trailer for Coming This Season on The Last of Us, we see a lot of different places. It seems pretty clear that we don't spend a lot of time in Boston. Maybe we go back there, but I get the sense that we don't.
1: Yeah, and it looks like they're going to bring on... Because they're traveling to all these different places, some pretty exciting guest actors, too. I didn't realize so many cool people were going to be on this series. It looked like Nick Offerman was there, Mm -hmm. uh, Murray Bartlett.
0: Mm -hmm. I was, like, thrilled. Yes. Yes. I know. There's actually so much to look forward to still. And and already I'm really jazzed. And, of course, I have to uh, end with the end of the episode, talk about one of my favorite a little Craig... It felt like a little tidbit of Craig Mazin, even if this comes from the story in the game, that uh, when they take Ellie back to Joel's apartment, basically, when they they are given Ellie as their ward, and they're going to sneak out of uh, Boston that night. So they have to lay low until the the sun sets. And so they go back to Joel's apartment, and Ellie finds uh, a radio, which isn't playing anything, because there's not a lot of radio stations left in the post-apocalypse. And next to it is a giant paperback book of billboards, like, top 100 songs by year. And she finds a little... A note inside that is a really simple code for decoding messages that Joel receives over the radio and it's whichever decade the song is from means something else and so uh, like 60s means like nothing new 70s means like check in later or something and 80s just has a red X to it and, and she's like what does 80s mean and then she figures out of course that 80s means something bad has happened and she kind of ribs him about it she, she plays a trick on him and says an 80s song played well he was napping, and he realizes that it's a trick. And that also is a cute moment where they begin to warm up to each other, and you kind of see how they could be uh friendly adversaries on this kind of road trip buddy comedy we're about to go on with them. Uh but then after they escape at the end of the episode, after the extremely tense moment where she almost gets killed and they almost get captured, we cut back to the empty apartment. Nobody's there now, the radio turns on, and it starts playing a depeche mode jam. Yeah, that was so great. We have this link uh, to The Hollywood Reporter where they asked Craig Mason, literally almost verbatim, they said, you know, how did you uh, settle on Depeche Mode's Never Let Me Down Again? It seemed like the perfect choice, an 80s hit that hasn't been overplayed. It's both kind of comic and foreboding. It's about a road trip. Like, it's too perfect. And Craig Mason says that his wife actually has like an encyclopedic knowledge of 80s music. And he basically said to her, I need an 80s song that's not overplayed and darkly comic and uh, maybe touches on a road trip vibe. <laughs> and she goes, oh, never let me down again. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. I don't know her, but I love her. And that's so exciting, though, too. I hope that this song and Depeche Mode has their like own little running up that hill moment where right? it suddenly starts charting again.
0: Literally, it really is great. Literally listened to that song like 10 times in the last 24 hours because it is so great. And it was like the perfect... Uh, cherry on top of that episode because the episode did end with such a violent and dark moment as they're Mm. fleeing everything looks like it's going very sideways very fast very bad vibes for what they're about to encounter as they head out into the crumbling uh, uh, cityscape of you know most of boston which has been abandoned and then we get this You know, again, not real funny, not haha funny, but kind of, you know, darkly cynically funny uh, little moment at the end, which reminded me of some of my favorite needle drops on uh, The Americans, which admittedly has a lot of great 1980s songs. So maybe that's part of it. But it did remind me of how that show constantly found this great way to, um, you know, uh, leaven or balance the drama with these great musical choices.
1: Agreed. I also loved that it showed Ellie's cleverness. Which to me tells me it's going to be a different kind of story than, say, what we have with Mandalorian, where, you know, it's not just uh, him carting around this um, prodigy that he needs to save. They're actually going to have a little bit of a back and forth, probably, you know, Um, that to me is a much more interesting dynamic uh, character wise that they can build on. So that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: like, what if the Mandalorian featured Pedro Pascal's face and a sidekick who can talk? I'm in. I love it. I love it. It has zero force shenanigans, no Luke Skywalker, but everything I actually like about the Mandalorian. If they get Amy Sedaris, if they can figure out how to get Amy Sedaris into this story, I am sold.
1: If they could figure out how to get Amy Sedaris and Depeche Mode into just about everything... I'd, I'd never leave my couch.
0: I think that would solve all of the streaming world's uh, many, many crises. Right now, we have it. We've fixed it. Uh, Bob Iger, Ted <laughs> Sarandos, we're available. Give us a call, Chris Licht. I have a solution for CNN, and it's called Amy Sedaris in Depeche mode for two hours a night every night. Actually, actually, it's I would actually watch. great. Wow, we've solved so many things here. You know, the uh, the streaming apocalypse, the real apocalypse, what's been renewed or canceled. We've just covered so much ground this week, Diane. Uh, what an
1: adventure we've had.
0: Ah, And if you want to go on this adventure with us, dear listeners, tell us what we should be watching as uh, 2023 quickly gets up to speed. You can email us your suggestions one more time. That email address is podcast at streamageddon.com. We promise we are still going to review the exciting fitness content on Netflix. And we have a lot more shows uh, premiering very soon that we are excited to talk about. No spoilers yet. You'll have to listen to find out. Uh, But until then... I have a feeling Diane and I will both keep Keep streaming. streaming. It's hard over Zoom. We're going to get it together (laughs) one day. I'll just have to make a sound effect of the two of us saying it in unison and just hit that button at the end of the episode. That's the answer.
1: It's a little bit creepy.